Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Well, good morning, guys. Why don't you take your Bibles and open to the table of contents? So today is, uh, is going to be an interesting day. If, today, if you love history, you're going to love today. If you don't like history, next week will come, all right? Uh, so, so really today we've been following the storyline of the Bible. Today, hopefully want to clear up a lot of, a lot of things you may, have, you may have questions about or not understand about the Bible today as we keep on this narrative. So if you're joining us, we're calling this Redemption Through History. Here's what we're looking at, the redemptive story of the Bible or what God is doing throughout the Bible and trying to make sense of this. And, and we started in Genesis chapter 1. And if you look at your table of contents, and you can go ahead and throw that, throw that up there. This, we'll use this today. This is a little guide that hopefully will help you. So one of the things that may be new to some of you, the Bible is not written in chronological, chronological order. It doesn't just start at the beginning and work its way through. There is some chronological order to it. But if you look at your table of contents, you'll see that so the, this, 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 main, uh, this main line in the middle, those, those Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, that would be the chronological storyline of the Bible, of the redemptive narrative, those books. The others, below and above, are books that are written during that time period. And so what can be confusing about your Bible is it's, it doesn't just follow that chronological, chronological order, it puts them in different places. And so we're going to try to make sense of this today. And so we started the story in Genesis. In Genesis 1, God creates everything, the heavens and the earth. And he creates man and woman. And we saw that pretty quickly, it takes about three chapters, they rebel and they walk away from God. And so now you have men and women who are outside of God, who are not connected to him and not in relationship with him. And, and God couldn't let them go. And at the middle of Genesis... We have this guy named Abraham, and Abraham is the new Adam that kind of starts off this new humanity uh, that, God, that God's going to create. And God tells Abraham, look, I have a plan for you. You're going to have a son. Out of this son will come a nation. You'll have land. This nation will have land. And out of this nation will come someone that will, fix, that will bless the world, that will fix this chaos that is, has come with Adam and Eve's sin. And so that's what the book of Genesis is. And then um, it, as we follow that storyline, we hit the main characters in that, right? So Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And so as you saw here, I have a dozen eggs on the, and they're not hard boiled. I, I didn't think that through. Um, so we'll see how, what happens. Sorry about the guitar, Scott. Um, it's 12 brothers and, and, and the rest of the Bible, the rest of the storyline, the Bible, the old Testament is centered around these 12 brothers and their families. And if you remember, these 12 brothers end up in Egypt because of Joseph, one of the 12, was taken to Egypt. He rises up in power, becomes the second highest in command. Eventually, the rest of the brothers come to Egypt. And so you have these 12 brothers in Egypt, and over the next three or 400 years, they grow, but a new pharaoh, a new king comes in, and that new king says, hey, there's a lot of Israelites here. This is a problem we need to put them in slavery because they could rise up against us. And so now you have these 12 brothers and who are long dead, but their families who are millions of people are in captivity. Well, God sends another hero in the end of Genesis and then into the book of Exodus. That hero's name is Moses. And Moses comes into Egypt and he leads God's people out, the Exodus, leads them out of captivity in Egypt. 
And so I know you have this family called Israel and these 12 tribes that are led out of Egypt and they're led to the desert. Remember, God has told them, I have a land for you. I have a place for you to grow and to flourish because, remember, the rescuer will come from you. So they have to have a place to flourish. You have this land, you just have to go conquer that land. And so the book of, uh, of Joshua, Numbers is kind of when they give us how many, kind of tell us all the families that are in this group of people. Book of Joshua is when they go and they, and they go into battle. And, and Joshua is a bloody book and they are conquering uh, the land that they are told to take hold of. And so now you have this group of people in this land. They haven't completely obeyed God. They haven't driven out all of their enemies yet. That's going to come back to bite them throughout history. And so now this family group grows. And in the book of Judges, this is a time where, where God's people are being led by these people called judges who are kind of a military or political leaders that, that kind of act as, as the leader of, that, of those countries. And the book of Judges is a time of up and down. Sometimes, some generations, Israel is faithful to God and they flourish. At other times, they rebel against God and they get conquered by nations. And that walks us through the book of Judges. And so the, the writers of the Bible, this, I want to help us understand this. As they write the Bible, here's what they're doing. They are centering the storyline of this group of people. These 12 brothers, the whole Old Testament is about these 12 brothers and their families and their people groups and just following them throughout history. And one of the things that we can get confused about, we read the Old Testament, and there's all these miracles, you know, fire comes down and, and destroys this altar or uh, you know, all kinds of, of crazy things with Red Sea parts. And we can get this idea that there's like a miracle a minute in the Old Testament, in the old days. But one thing you got to remember, we're covering thousands of years. There are generations that come through of Israel in the Old Testament with no big hero, no big miraculous story. They're just called to be faithful. So remember, we got to think, this is many, many years of human history wrapped up in this, in this thing we call the Bible. And so we keep going here, and we get into Judges, and, and then eventually what we, we've been at the past two weeks, this middle section of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and Chronicles, those tell the story of what we call the kingdom era, or when Israel is ruled by kings. And if you remember in 1 Samuel, we have the first king of Israel. His name was Saul, right? And Saul comes along. Saul uh, doesn't really do what he's supposed to do. Kind of goes crazy at the end. We have a new king, David, that comes together. And so what happens here is David now takes all of these 12 brothers and their people groups, and he unifies them into one kingdom. See, before there are all these tribes, and if, I don't know if you have brothers and siblings, like sometimes there can be a little sibling rivalry. Yeah, that's the storyline of Israel. And what he does, what David does successfully, the first time ever, bring all of these tribes together and form a kingdom. And so we read about that in First and Second Samuel and Kings, and that's the storyline we're at. And so here today is what we're going to do is we're going to say, how do we get from this kingdom, and what is the next stage in their journey? What you're going to find is Israel now has a choice. They are unified into this kingdom under David, and they are the, one of the strongest nations in the world. And God has been faithful. He gave Abraham a son. They now are a nation, a kingdom. They now have land. There's one more promise of Abraham that's yet to be fulfilled, and that promise is that a king will come, a new king, a savior, 
that will fix the entire world. And he's going to come from this line of David is the promise. And so you have Israel as a kingdom, and now they have a choice. Will they be faithful to God and live under his covenant and flourish? Or will they rebel and go off on their own and face the consequences? Then on the top side, they're the top. And what you'll see, if you can guess from our covering of Israel, over the next 400 years, they will slide, slide, slide down. They will not obey God consistently. They will turn from God. Let's, let's follow the story. So if you're, so if you're looking at those middle books there on, on the slide, David has a son. His, his name was Solomon. Okay, and so David charges Solomon. There's this awesome place, you look it up sometime, where David comes to Solomon. He says, Solomon, listen, stay faithful to the Lord. Israel, you're, you're in charge, man. You're, you're the man. You're the king of Israel. Israel will flourish if you remain faithful to the Lord. Solomon starts off good. He builds a temple to God. And so if you remember back in the desert, we had this thing called the tabernacle, the tent, which was the kind of the center place of where God met the people. Well, now that place has moved to a temple and it's in Jerusalem. It's a magnificent temple. Solomon builds that. However, Solomon begins marrying daughters of foreign kings to make political alliances which seems smart, except for God told him not to. He starts marrying these daughters of other kings, and what the Bible says is these daughters start turning his heart away. Now, if you'll look in your Bible, you'll notice here at the bottom, so during this time of 1 Samuel and Kings and the Chronicles, this kingdom area, era, you have at the bottom Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those are wisdom literature. And those are all written during this time of David and Solomon. And, and because of the, we're not following the, those are, those are supporting literature. We're not using, jumping into those in this series as we're following the path of Israel. But that's where you find those things. And so now we jump into 1 Kings. And so Solomon's king, and, uh, and he's kind of up and down at this end of his life, he kind of comes back to God and, and kind of realizes he's done some stupid things. Read the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll figure that one out. Um, and Solomon has a son. Now, he has a son named Rehoboam. And if you'll turn now to 1 Kings chapter 12, Rehoboam is what you might call a fool. Because he's been given this great kingdom, and it is a wealthy kingdom. And we're going to read about Rehoboam, Solomon's son, here in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4. The people, Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king, and the people of Israel come to him. These, some of these groups of people, probably representatives from each of them. And they say to him, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4, Your father, Solomon, made our yoke heavy. See, Solomon built a lot of things, and guess what he did it? On the backs of the people. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and, and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. That's, here's the, hey, Rehoboam, you're king now. Listen, Solomon, he was rough. But if you will lighten our load, if we can just live in this kingdom, we will serve you. Like, quit taxing us and quit making us build for you. Let us do our thing. No taxation without representation. Something along those lines. Solomon, Rehoboam says to him, 
He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to see me. So the people went away. So they come to him like, hey, take this heavy burden off. Solomon said, or Rehoboam says, okay, give me three days. I'll come back to you. Verse 6, this is where he's a fool. And King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men. Okay, this is good. Who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer these people? So Rehoboam goes to Solomon's, to his dad's kind of group of older, wise counsel. And he says, listen, they've come to me. They've asked me to kind of lighten their load. What do you say? And they said to him in verse 7, if you will be a servant, uh, if, you will, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. He's like, listen, if you serve them, if you just kind of like, all right, let's, we'll, we'll do this. He's like, you're going to have a great kingdom. Verse 8, but he abandoned the counsel of the old men and the women gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise me that we answer this people when they have said, lighten your yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to the people. You need to say this, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you should say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father, father's thighs. Like that has a ring to it, doesn't it? It's like a Clint Eastwood line there. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Here's why he's a fool, and I wish we had our college, more of our college students here today. He's a fool because he goes to the old men that have wisdom, and they say, do this. He doesn't like it, so he goes to his peers. What do you think I should do? Oh, yeah, do this. Okay, that sounds good. Anyone ever done that? Verse 16, so he tells the people this. When all, when all the Israel saw the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? Meaning, we're not, we're not with David anymore. We're not with you. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, meaning we're gone. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then down in verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all of Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There's none that followed the house of David but the tribe of of Judah only. So here's what happens. Rehoboam takes this group of people and they come to him and they say, lighten our load. Here's what he says. No. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make it worse. And so here's what happened. Under the leadership of a guy named Jeroboam, so we take Judah, who's in Jerusalem, and Benjamin, and the rest rebel. And there's a civil war in Israel. And under the leadership of Jeroboam, they go and they create another nation, and it will be called Israel. And these two, Judah and Benjamin, I'm going to put here in this bowl, are now going to be called Judah. And so now where there was one kingdom, you have two. You have the kingdom on the left, Israel, and they're going to go to the north. They're going to call it the northern kingdom. And then you have the kingdom in the south called Judah. And David's line, the kings that come from David's line, will continue to rule in Judah. So the kingdom splits under Rehoboam. 
And so you have 10 tribes in the north. They'll be centered eventually in a town called Samaria. If you remember the story um, of, of the Good Samaritan, that's, that's the story. That's where they go. They're going to go to Samaria. And then the southern king and Judah and Benjamin are centered in Jerusalem. Okay, and so, so the, the kings now are going to follow, and they're going to tell us what happens to these two people groups, these two kingdoms. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on the north first, the, tw- the ten tribes that are called Israel. We're going to see what happens to them. So turn your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 17. Now, the northern kingdom will have 20 kings. And as the writer of the book of Kings, which I don't know who it is, but as the writer writes the book of Kings, he's going to judge the kings of each of these nations. He's going to judge them on, on a, here's the criteria, he will judge them. Did they worship the God of Israel? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and did they worship that God and were they faithful to the covenant? That's the, the measuring stick on which he will judge the kings. And as we look at the northern tribe of Israel, here's what we're going to, what we're going to find is out of 20 kings, you know how many were faithful? Zero. Zero were faithful. And so God, as a matter of fact, King Jeroboam, who splits this off, builds two temples, kind of to rival Solomon's temple, and he institutes idol worship in those temples immediately. Now God sends prophets, we'll look at this next time, God sends prophets to talk to these to talk to these two nations. As you look at the Bible, you'll see the prophets up, up at the top. And so the, the prophets of the north are Amos and Hosea. Um, two of the, the, the famous ones that you'll, you'll see are Elijah and Elisha, if you remember those, some of those stories. Those are all prophets that speak to the north. And here's the role of the prophet. The role of the prophet is to tell the people what God wants them to do and kind of call the people back to God. Here's what we're going to find. The northern prophets will speak and speak and speak, but the people will not respond. So God sends prophets, and over the next hundred years, what's going to happen is this nation of Israel, these ten tribes, is going to get more corrupt and more corrupt and more corrupt. Second Kings chapter 17. Because eventually what will happen, God will speak to these prophets and say, call Israel to repent, and they won't. And so God's patience is reached. The word is forbearance. His forbearance is reached. Here's what I want to encourage us. If we refuse to live under the covenant of what God has called us to, we cannot expect to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. And these 10 tribes are going to learn a really hard lesson about this. 2 Kings 17 verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, so even though we're talking the northern tribe, the writer's kind of helping us understand the time frame based on the king of Judah. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. So Hosea is the, the king over this northern tribe of Israel. And he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him, Against him came Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. If you know world history, anyone ever heard of a little nation called Assyria? Well, if you haven't, you're getting ready to. And Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he'd done year by year. So remember, now Assyria is this kind of the bad nation. I mean, they are the conquering nation of the world. If you're a, a kingdom in that area, you've got to pay tribute. You've got to give them money. You've got to kind of honor that. Yeah, you guys are the man. We're not. 
Well, he didn't do this. Kind of ticks off the wrong guy. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. And for three years, he besieged it. So what happens? He, the king here mess, messes up, messes with the wrong people, doesn't pay the tribute he's supposed to. So the king of Assyria comes and he realizes this. He's like, all right, we're going to come deal with this little place called Samaria in this little northern kingdom of Israel. And it says that he came for three years and besieged a city. Now, I did a ton of research on this because I love history, and so I just, I had a lot of fun researching this. To siege a city in that day, here's what that meant. That meant that you came up with your army. So if you imagine the Syrian army coming up to this, this walled city of, of Samaria, and of course, everyone in, the, in Israel like runs inside the city because here come these mean Assyrians that just kill everyone. And they go inside the city, they lock the doors. And so here's what the Assyrians have, to, have a choice. Okay, we can either go charge the city and try to break down the walls and climb over and get shot. Nah. Let's just lay siege to that city, which here's what laying siege to a city meant. It meant that your army surrounded that city. You let nothing come in and nothing go out. You starved them out. There's, there's stories from history of siege cities where they are eating everything inside the city and they eat all the goats and cows and then they move to dogs and cats and anything that they can and a lot of them even go to cannibalism because they're so afraid of what's outside the gates of the city. So Syria lays siege to them or, and the Assyrians, like they are the first great empire of the world and here's what they're, they're here's what as history kind of talks about how they got so powerful. Here's how they did it, two ways. Number one, siege warfare. They didn't try to go through a city. They just surrounded and said, yeah, we'll wait. We'll wait till you are starving, and then we'll come in. And here's the second. When they came in, they created fear and terror among other nations. There is a reputation for what Assyrians do when they conquer a city. And if you are a city leader, you don't want that done to you. We'll find that out in a second. Verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, king of Assyria, captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah, on the Habor, the river of Gazan, in the cities of Medez. So here's what happens. He lays siege to this city. Eventually, three years later, they give in. He captures the city. And what Assyrians did when they captured is they tortured the leaders. They usually took the women and children for themselves, but they kind of spread that nation about. So you have this, this 10 tribes, this nation of Israel, this northern nation, who is now captured and gone. They're wiped out. They're spread throughout the land. They simply vanish. If you read history on the Assyrian kings that would go and conquer, they kind of took pride in the destruction they would make on their enemies. And so they have all these old Assyrian temples, and, and every single one of them, each king would kind of have his, his resume of what he did, and it would, it would always say, I destroyed, I devastated, I burned with fire, I just, just, I mean, that's what they did when the Assyrians took over a city. We don't have all the details of what happened to this northern kingdom when they took over the city, but I can tell you it was probably very bad. Um, one, one of the Assyrian kings, I, I read this in Judges, but I love it so much because it helps us understand 
what happened when Assyrians took over a city. Here's what uh, Arshabanapal, a Syrian king, says about a nation he took over. For a distance of one month and 25 days march, so however long it would take you to walk that way, I devastated the districts of Elam. Elam was the, the nation he conquered. I spread salt and thornbush there to harm the soil. Sons of the kings, sisters of the kings, members of the royal family, young and old, governors, knights, artisans, as many as there were, inhabitants, male and female, big and little, horses, mules, asses, flocks, herds, more numerous than swarms of locusts, I carried them off as booty to Assyria. They don't come in and conquer and say, okay, you just live peaceful. No, they destroy you and they carry you off. He says, the voice of man, the steps of flocks and herds, the happy shouts, I put an end to them. So for your Assyrian king, your bragging rights were kind of how much destruction you played on your enemies. Here's what another king said about a different city. After they besieged it, he says, I built a pillar in the city gate and I flayed alive all the chief men who had revolted and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar, some I impaled upon stakes. That's Assyria. And that's why they struck terror, because you saw what they did in the neighboring city, and you're like, I don't want them to do that to me. That's who conquers the northern kingdom. And so the families of the north, these ten tribes, are broken up. Some are killed, and they're scattered throughout the land. They're taken back to Assyria, and they just kind of blend in to Assyrian empire. Now, we still have this kingdom. We still have the south, Judah. And remember, there's this promise that out of the line of David, a king will come, a rescuer will come. And so you can imagine being Judah in the south. And you just heard, you got news of what happened to your old countrymen. They just got destroyed by this nation of Assyria. Why? Because they didn't obey the Lord and the Lord allowed Assyria to go do it. That's what happened. That's what God tells us. So if you're Judah, if you're this tribe of Judah, what do you do? 2 Kings chapter 17. Let's see what happens to Judah. So we jump in the middle of a story. But this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is my fault. This is still talking about the, the northern kings. Tell us why. Sorry. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he feared other gods and walked in the customs of nations within, with whom the Lord drove out people before the people of Israel. And the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced, and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God, things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and Asherim, that's worship to other gods. And every high hill under every green tree. And there they made offerings in all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, which the Lord has said to them, you shall not do. Yet the Lord, the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes. In accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers, I sent you before my servants 
and the prophets. So God kind of tells Israel why they got destroyed. And the reader, the, the writer here, the reason he gives is because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. He's going to say, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt, like this God. And he said, just follow me. And they kept putting idols and they kept worshiping all these other things, all the other nations brought in. And God says, because you did that, I will let you dissolve into nothing. Now let's look at the northern kingdom, or the southern kingdom. Goodness. The southern kingdom will have 20 kings. And where the northern kingdom had zero that were faithful is a writer of Kings writes, he's going to find eight of the 20 faithful for the southern kingdom of Judah. They're going to last a little bit longer than their northern counterparts. And so if we go back to our chronological timeline, you'll see the prophets are going to write to the southern kingdom. And so much of, much of your Bible, the prophetic writing in your Bible is to the southern kingdom of Judah. So they'll have bad kings who will introduce idols, and they'll have a good king. And he'll come and destroy idols and kind of call Israel back to God. And then another king will come and he'll be bad and he'll put idols back in the temple. And it's going to go on and on and on. 2 Kings chapter 24. Let's see what happens. Verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. So Babylon has now conquered Assyria and they are the ruling nation in the world. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned to rebel against the king of Babylon. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of Syrians and bands of Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord. They spoke by the servants and the prophets. So remember, God tells them, listen, turn back to me and I will protect you. Continue to walk away and I will send nations that will destroy you. Verse 3, surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood that the Lord would not pardon. So if you see that name Manasseh, Manasseh was one of the kings of Judah. And here's what Manasseh does. He puts temples or idols back into the temple, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. And then he institutes temple worship that included human baby sacrifice. So you have this nation of Judah that's called to follow the Lord, and now they're sacrificing babies in the temple that God had Solomon build to some God. And God says, enough. And the writer of Kings makes sure we understand who gets the credit for Babylon coming to destroy Judah. Who got the credit? God got the credit. So in 586 BC, before Christ comes, almost 600 years before Jesus comes, the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by the Babylonians. Let's go down to verse 10. At this time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and officials and his palace officials. The king of Judah comes out and is like, hey, you got us. I give up. White flag. I surrender. He's lucky it's not the Assyrians. Babylon's a little bit nice, nicer. The king of Babylon took him prisoner 
in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasure of the house of the Lord and treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all of the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all of Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captains, all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained in, Israel, or in Judah, in, in Jerusalem, except for the poorest people of the land. So Babylon comes in, they seize the city, the king of Judah comes out, he's like, all right, we surrender. And so the king says, okay, I'm going to take you, your family, and all of your skilled people, your craftsmen, your political leaders, your thinkers, I'm going to take all of them, and you're going to come with us to Babylon. And so this southern kingdom of Judah that was centered in Jerusalem is destroyed. They come in, they tear the temple apart. They smash it to the ground. They take all the gold, all the things that Israel has kind of accumulated that's in that temple. They take it all as booty back to Babylon. And so what we're left with here is this image of all of the leaders of, Babel, or of, of Judah being led as captives to Babylon. If you can imagine, one of the things I try to do when I read this is put myself in this story. Can you imagine walking outside the city gates of Jerusalem as a captive, knowing you'll probably never see your home again and turning around and seeing smoke come up from the temple because it's being destroyed and having images of worship, going there to worship with your family, the Lord, having images of, oh, that's where my daughter got married and it's gone, and they're being carried off to Babylon. And so for the next 70 years, they will be in exile in Babylon until a guy, until a kingdom named Persia rises up and defeats Babylon. And next week, we'll kind of see what happens. We'll follow this group of people now who are going to be exiles in Babylon and see what happens to them. But here's the question as I read this. If we didn't know the story of the Bible, here's what we'd say. So is God done with them? I mean, the northern tribes, northern kingdom, they're nowhere to be found. What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to this little group of people called Judah with this home in Jerusalem who are now being led off into exile? Because remember, they still have this promise that out of one king, David, Someone's going to come that's going to rescue them. It's going to fix them. How is God going to be faithful in this? One of the things that I, as I look, as I read this story of Israel, and I hope you're seeing, there's a problem with Israel. And the problem is, no matter how good they are or how wicked they can be, their hearts are empty. Their hearts are broken. Even in the best days with the best king, they still don't follow the Lord. And so what's that, what that's doing, what the writers are trying to show us, is there's a reason, that, the, the reason they keep falling in all this trouble is because their hearts are broken. And kind of, God kind of gives them this promise that one day, he's going to come and he's going to do something about the heart. He's going to fix a heart. And, and, and to follow God won't just be about a kingdom and following rules. It's going to be about our hearts being changed. But here's what we have to know about this kingdom in Judah. Although it looks bad right now, the promise of God is that he will sustain them. And we're going to watch over the next few weeks how God sustains this people. And if there's one thing I hope you learn from this series, 
Israel's not the hero. David's not the hero. Moses isn't the hero. There's always a bigger hero because Israel is unfaithful. And the Bible is not about a bunch of faithful people. The Bible's written about a faithful God that even in the midst of all this destruction and brokenness, God will sustain them. Guess what, Christian? Your story, it's not about your faithfulness. As I was reading this, I was just evaluating all the dumb things I've done in my life, which we could write a book. How many times I played the fool and could have just got destroyed. And I look back, it was zero faithfulness on my own. It was, it was God sustaining me. And this weekend of Thanksgiving, think back to your lives, how many times you could have just ruined it. But God sustains. And so God's going to chastise them, and they're gonna, it's going to hurt. But he's going to sustain them. And the same thing with us. If you're a believer in here, God will chastise you. He will let some Babylons come into your life. He'll let some Assyrians and he'll make it hurt. But he will sustain you. You don't sustain yourself. It's not your faithfulness that keeps you going. It's God's faithfulness. And so God's going to tell Israel, even while they're going off into exile, or tell Judah, listen, I'm faithful. Trust me. I will fix this thing. He'll say, your hope is not in your faithfulness. Just like Israel needs something outside themselves because their hearts are wicked. They need a rescuer to come outside themselves. So do you, and so do I. And that rescuer is not me, and it's not you. It's not your church attendance. It's not your good behavior. It's nothing like that. You need a rescuer from outside yourself. Enter Jesus. As Hebrews says, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus will come and he will fight the battle that you can't fight. He will defeat the enemy you can't defeat. And he will be faithful. And our hope is in his faithfulness, not our own. So as we receive communion this morning, as we dip the bread, may we remember, this is Thanksgiving. May we remember God's faithfulness. May we acknowledge Jesus that he saves us and that he sustains us. And outside of him, guys, we're done. Outside of, for Judah, outside of God's carrying them, they are vanishing into history just like every other nation. But God will sustain them.